welcome to One Great History. I'm Alex. And I'm Sabrina. And we're here with friend and producer Nick. How's it going, kids and kiddos? It's going pretty good. Yeah. It's a birthday party today, kind of. Yeah, birthday party for the Winnipeg Free Press. Woo-hoo! Yeah, I thought maybe it was one of your birthdays. I was like, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, we told you the topic. Yeah, I know. If it was one of our birthdays, I think we would have brought, like, cake and a hat or something. <laughs> we would have made it more of a thing. Though I... I as I was driving here, I'm like, I should have brought, like, a noisemaker. Oh, that would be fun. I will insert maker. sound effects. Okay. <laughs> okay, insert sound effects of party noises right here. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, so we both put some stuff together for this uh, commemoration, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll start out with some of the, like, founding and early history of the Free Press. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to tell us about some of its reporters? About three of its reporters. Okay, Perfect. None of whom I picked out of their, like, significance to the free press. More about my personal interest in talking about them. That's, no. And my my summary of its, like, founding and history is also, I have to say, not based entirely on, like, what was significant, but based largely on what I thought was fun. So So this is a fun episode on the free press. Yeah. (laughs) This is, I mean, 150 years is a long time. A lot's happened. So we've just chosen the stuff that we like. Yeah. And, and, like, some of the important stuff, I guess. Yeah. Maybe. There's one important reporter <laughs> in mine. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I guess I'll just get started with the founding. So, um, Winnipeg Free Press started out as the Manitoba Free Press uh, for the first, like, several decades of its life. And it's founded by two guys. So, the first is William Fisher Luxton, who had immigrated to um, Canada from England as a child in 1855. Um, and I feel like people were, like, founding newspapers left and right If you at look at the Tribune, like, or not the Tribune, but the, like, U of M like the archives, U of M digital archives, they have a newspaper section. There's so, there's so many. A lot of them are, like, they had, like, eight issues, right? Yeah. Like, Well, there's one called Quiz. Is there? I haven't seen this and one. And I cannot figure out what is going on with Quiz. Okay. Interesting. It ran for, like, two years. Yeah. It's, like... Seemingly political, like commentary okay. and satire, but in a way, it's like it's not really anything. Right? It's not like super funny. Yeah. So I guess that's why this is like significant. Also, that this is a paper that was founded then and has lasted 150 years. Because even our like other big paper, the Tribune, yep, that was founded not long after the Free Press. I assume you will be talking a little bit. I won't talk about the founding of the Tribune. They'll come up a little yeah. bit here and there because Luxton's involved in that too. In the like founding of, of the it? Tribune. Okay, he I actually, I don't I don't have I don't have that in here. Okay, you can tell you can tell us about that bit oh, when it comes. I didn't research this. Okay, <laughs> this is just from uh, doing tours like five years ago. Okay, I remember this. Yeah, I mean, if you want to like, if you have like tour stories as well that you yes. want to stick in, absolutely. Yeah, like the Tribune was founded not long after the Free Press is my point, and they closed in nineteen eighty. Yeah, so they lasted quite a while, but uh, not yeah. as long. The Free Press outlasted which is, them, which is sad because we love the Tribune. <laughs> Because it was a worse paper. It was bad. <laughs> Tribune trumps. Woo-hoo! Yeah. And it got it got real trashy by the 70s and 80s as well. Yeah. Whereas the free press remained like an actual newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> With like good journalism yeah. standards. The paper of record. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mentioned that there were so many newspapers because Luxton had actually founded his first newspaper in Ontario at the age of 21. That's young. It is. I guess um, anyone could just kind of be a reporter. Yes. Yeah. It was in like it was in like a small town as yeah. well. It was like a small town paper. Um, but he comes to Winnipeg in 1871 and he's briefly our first public school teacher. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we had just like not our first teacher overall, but we had just opened our first like publicly funded school. I guess we were like just a province. 
yep. in the past two years, so there wouldn't be any public exactly. schools. Yeah, there weren't any public schools, so they had just opened the first public school, and he was its first school teacher okay. for one year. <laughs> nice. And then he goes and starts a newspaper. And this is the Manitoba Free Press, or is this? This like, is the Manitoba okay. Free Press. Yeah, eighteen seventy-two. So, um, yeah, when is yeah very like shortly um, around the time that Winnipeg begins, right? Yeah, like very shortly before, actually. Yeah. Um. So the other founder is this guy named John A. Kenny, who's basically like the money guy. He seems to be like this like massive old farmer who for some <laughs> reason has a bunch of money. I don't know. I mean, if you get in good on like the grain trade. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot less about him because I think he was mainly there as like the money guy and also as like the muscle. So, <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah. It's funny to think of papers needing like okay. muscle. The reason I know they do need muscle in 1870s yeah. Winnipeg. The reason it's not because like people were like being like dangerous or whatever it's because um they had a manual printing press so they needed someone like a strong guy to crank it literally so he was one of those strong men who cranked the printing press well it's funny because also um in 1873 there is a riot that destroys one of the free press buildings so there so it's good to have big old kenny with his muscles yeah um our first mayor was involved in that one nice (laughs) stay classy winnipeg (laughs) yeah (laughs) so um that printing press, by the way, arrives to Winnipeg by steamboat in October of 1872. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's hard to imagine how big those old printing presses would have been. Uh, yeah, it would have been huge. And I think they ordered it from, like, New York. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know where else you get a printing press in 1872, so. Probably nowhere in Western Canada. Right, yeah. Um, so they rent what the Manitoba Historical Society describes as a shack at Maine and James. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I guess they were pretty dedicated to the idea right off the bat because both Kenny and Luxton, as well as Luxton's whole family, live upstairs um, above the, like, brand new free press headquarters. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait, there's more. Two of the employees of the paper live downstairs, like, just, like, in the newspaper area. They just have, like, bunks. What? Yeah. The, like, guy who does the, like, printing, like, the typesetter or whatever. Oh, my God. And one of the reporters just, like, live down in, like, beds in the office. That's crazy. There wasn't a lot of like work home differentiation back in the day. <laughs> no, no, you a lot I mean everyone was like, well, pay to board our employees. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, so the building is described as hot in the summer and cold in the winter, but I also wouldn't be shocked if that described every building in Winnipeg in eighteen seventy two, yeah. honestly. Um, and so the first edition, and this is like a little there's maybe a little debate to be had here. The first edition is handed out on November 9th, eighteen seventy two. But no one refers to this as the first edition of the Winnipeg Free Press. Oh, yeah, you were telling me about this. Yeah. yeah. Well, it confused me because when I found the what we call the first edition, it referred to two previously printed articles. And I was like, that doesn't check out. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what they had done was this first kind of almost like test edition on November 9th. And like they hadn't, they didn't have like a set thing yet, right? Like yeah. they didn't have like a set schedule that it was coming out on. But they printed this one on November 9th handed it out everyone loved it they ran out of copies i desperate for news i guess or probably local news they might not have had too much like local reporting Um, i guess there was the red river gazette yeah no there wouldn't have been much at this time um and yeah i mean they handed this one out for free as well so i'm sure people were nice yeah and it had a couple of like local interest stories that we'll get to um so the first kind of real edition of the free press is printed november 30th 1872 um and when I found it, it really confused me because the first couple, the first couple pages are literally just the Dominion Lands Act. 
reprinted. <laughs> huh. I don't know why, but that's what it was. Okay. I mean, uh, that's what people want to read. Is, sure. Uh, legal documents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as a new paper, there's definitely some kind of filler and like fluff pieces. Yeah. Like they've grabbed some like miscellaneous articles from various other newspapers. Yeah. Um, one I want to highlight is called Looks of Literary Women. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, no. This one begins. Very intellectual women are seldom beautiful. Their features, and particularly their foreheads, are more or less masculine. <laughs> ah, I see we're sort of veering into phrenology today. Uh, yes. <laughs> the article then just goes on to describe which literary women were and were not beautiful. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Who uh, would- Charlotte Bronte is a yes. Was beautiful. Okay. I can't remember. There were a bunch of ones I didn't know. They must have been, like, prominent at the time. time. Okay. But Charlie Bronte gets a pass, which is good. She gets a pass, yeah. Um, but I just... <laughs> this is hard-hitting journalism. Right off the bat. Starting strong, right? Um, is this not also the origins of Facebook rating women? That's what I was thinking. It sounds <laughs> <laughs> that it just feels exactly, mash, like, yeah. exactly like the worst dudes. Just, like, random Facebook post where he's like... I don't think women authors are hot. Like, yeah. Well, like Facebook was originally, yeah. Like, a, like was it like a hot or not? Yeah. Type? Yeah. Do you guys remember hot or not? I, I yes. was on hot or not, and were I was you? dating like, this wait, girl you, that you physically, as a photograph, were on hot or not. Or yes, you were because the girl okay. I was dating at the time was very superficial, and uh-huh. she made me get a hot or not account <laughs> so that like she could. Yeah. Was it like if you don't get at least a seven point five, we're done? Well, like, no. It was. It was like she wanted me to like. She wanted to show off her boyfriend. Okay. Type of thing. Like, she's like, and then she like wanted to like, there was like a jealousy component and like a controlling thing there of like, mm-hmm. well, this girl thinks you're hot. So like it, she yeah. was like her ex-boyfriend lived with her. Like it was huh. a total disaster of a relationship. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Good times. Huh. But I, I was, I was not voted as hot as she was. Oh, interesting. On there. But I, I was still somewhat hot, I guess. Oh. Not to brag or anything. Yeah. In my I'm- 20s. <laughs> Ladies. No, I feel like that was not a good site to spend a great great deal of time on if you wanted to have any sense of (laughs) self-esteem. And apparently just existing in 1872 was bad for your self-esteem. Yes, also, if you happen to be a woman that this man had seen in 1872. (laughs) He was going to write about it. Um, Anyway, so it does actually continue on to some actual local interest pieces. Okay. Um, So, yeah, like I said, two of these are reprinted from that previous November 9th Mm -hmm. edition. Um, one is about local railroad interests, mm. um, and the other is an editorial on the lack of post offices. Yeah, there wouldn't have been many, I assume. <laughs> no, and we, like, we may have to do a, like, railway episode at one point, because there's so much railway politics here that I am not going to talk about. It is amazing that we, I don't even think it's on our list, is, like, the sort of swindle yeah. Winnipeg did to get the railroad to come here instead yes. of Selkirk, because that's yeah. a whole thing. That's a it, whole political scandal. Absolutely. <laughs> And I feel like there are a bunch of, like, sub-scandals as well, and then, like, ensuing scandals. and Oh, and everyone's mad about everything all yes. the time. Yeah. So it'll come up again. Um, but, yeah, there's a bunch of local things. A Thanksgiving Day had just been declared by the lieutenant governor to celebrate the peace and plenty enjoyed by Manitoba during the year. Uh, there was a story about a criminal known as Shorty who had been arrested <laughs> for larceny, and he had escaped the police station. Nice. I really like this story. Oh my god, this is before the police station is underground, I think. I guess, hey? When is when is that built? I think around 1873. Okay, so maybe that's why they did that. <laughs> um, a man named Wilson is believed to be responsible for helping his, him escape and is arrested and then released on $200 bail. Wilson then flees. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, apparently cutting several telegraph wires along the way as well. Nice. Go Wilson. <laughs> yeah. Get out of town. Um, Shorty, however, is found and rearrested. Ah. Um, and apparently an unnamed police officer was also charged with helping Shorty escape. Interesting. So there's already like hot gossip in this very first edition, which I really love. It doesn't surprise me that Winnipeg is already in the midst of some sort of prison break scandal. Yeah. Do you remember in our City Hall episode we talked about the like 1880s police headquarters where you could just bend the bars yeah. and step out? <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. So I can't imagine escaping the 1872 jail was that difficult. No, also apparently you can just bribe the cop. It sounds like it. And like some other dude. Yeah. I don't know what the involvement of the cop or the other guy were. It was just like that they were implicated. Interesting. Yes. That's a fun little scandal to start off. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So there's like classifieds, marriages and deaths. It's looking like a pretty kind of standard newspaper yep. aside from the first two pages of the Dominion Lands Act for some reason. Um. They also have an article on the size, growth and development of Winnipeg which tells us it is apparent that our town has grown very materially in every interest. So they tell us that there was a population of 300 in 1870, of 700 in 1871, and about 1,500 um, as of November 1st, 1872. Uh, this includes 1,019 men and 448 women. So lot more men well, than women yeah i mean that yeah. makes sense for a frontier town that's generally the way it is yeah we've talked we've talked about this in previous episodes like the prohibition episode yeah. and stuff there's a really good book by sarah carter called the importance of being monogamous about canada's attempt to try and send women to the west to like oh, marry men yeah to like get men to stop being terrible well they would give out like basically return train tickets to men in the west to be like go to like the east yeah find a woman bring her back with this ticket weird just like go obtain a woman like, and then come back. But also, what a tough sell! Like, you want to come to the middle of nowhere with me? Yeah. Well, you I and got I got forty acres of uncleared bush. You and I both just read um, Kate Be Beaton's book Ducks, Ducks yeah. where she talks a lot about um, or like features, I guess, um, a lot of these kind of male-dominated areas where there's not a whole lot of women, and it can it can get t pretty toxic. Yes. That's 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 all I'll say on that. I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's also Winnipeg, circa Yes, that is also Winnipeg, circa 1872. Um, but also 124 buildings had been constructed during the previous years, including stores, homes, and warehouses, which had effectively um, doubled the number of buildings. Wow, that's a lot of construction. It is. So, yeah, Winnipeg has... And I mean, 124 buildings is actually not that many. If you think, you know, you can imagine that number of buildings. That's like a small yeah. neighborhood. So Winnipeg's pretty small still. Yeah. Um... Yeah, but the Free Press um, is doing pretty well right off the bat. They moved to a new building in 1874 on Main Street and then again to McDermott in 1882. They don't move until a little later to their kind of permanent building mm -hmm. where they are for a long time. Their uh, corner on McDermott was called Newspaper Row because the Tribune and the yeah. Telegram were right next to them also. So was... I think that's really fun. They were all next to each other. And they didn't like each other. <laughs> no. So there were uh, stories about them like trying to yell at each other through the windows of the buildings. Yeah. Because like... The free press is where ShwarmaCon is today, and mm -hmm. the Telegram is the Telegram building right across the street, so you can just yell out the window. And is the Tribune the one where the parking lot is yes. now? Okay, so... Yeah, it was an old theater building that burned down. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so you could, like, within yelling distance of each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about um, Luxton. 
So Yes, let's. Yes. So Luxton is definitely, yeah, definitely more significant to our story than Kenny. Kenny's just kind of there print, cranking the print and press. Just being strong and rich. Exactly. So he serves as editor of the Free Press for uh, 21 years. And he's definitely not a neutral figure. He actually runs for mayor in 1874. Nice. You know who he is defeated by? Cornish. He is. He's defeated by, by Cornish. Francis E. Cornish. <laughs> we'll tell you guys about Cornish one day, but do you want to summarize just who Cornish is? Yeah. Uh, so Cornish is Winnipeg's first mayor. He um, got the vote by cheating, <laughs> somehow won, despite blatantly committing election fraud, um, burned an effigy of John A. McDonald on Main Street at one point. The write-up in the paper was that he was standing on a barrel of whiskey and he was more full of whiskey than the barrel was. (laughs) (laughs) So Luxton may have been the more sensible choice. Yeah, and uh, we named a library in a street after Cornish. Yeah. I like to remind people that we commemorated him, even though he was like objectively kind of a sleazeball. I feel like this is extremely definitive of what Winnipeg was in 1874, I guess, and is still perhaps today that we're like... This sensible man who runs a newspaper and was a school teacher? No. We want the guy who cheats. Yeah. I think the loophole he exploited was something like, if you own property in different neighborhoods, you could vote more than once. So he told his friends to go vote multiple times they own property. And then they're like, like, ah, we'll close that loophole. Right. I guess it's a loophole. It's not like cheating exactly, exactly, but... It's pretty close to cheating. Yes. It was like he had way more votes than there were in Winnipeg. Right. Like way more votes than there were people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Luxton is a staunch liberal, like in the big L sense. Yeah. He was a supporter of the Liberal Party. However, um, this is where things get fun with Luxton. Yeah. He becomes very critical of the provincial liberals under uh, Thomas Greenway. And this ends up getting him... Are we going to talk about the Greenway Agreement? <laughs> <laughs> um, are we... We're going to talk about their kind of beef together, basically. Okay. <laughs> so... Um, this ends up getting him and the free press in hot water. Oh. So I don't want to get too deep, actually, into, like, 1880s, like, liberal party politics here. Another um, time? Yeah, another time. <laughs> but essentially what Luxton is accusing Greenway of is, quote, surrendering to railway barons. Oh. Yeah. So he's also accusing, I think, like, people, like, left, right, and center of surrendering to railway barons. <laughs> I, like this. Okay, but also, who in Winnipeg wasn't? Well, right. <laughs> At one point, Luxton is sued for libel by the province's attorney general. What? Joe Martin. So, uh, also, J- he's called Fightin' Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Martin is a very contemporary political name. I it feel is. like Joe Martin's the guy that's running for, like, a local it, office. It is. It, it, does it help if you think Fightin' Joe? Does That, that sound makes him more seem like- more like an old-timey <laughs> yeah. name. So um, it seems like, yeah, Luxton had basically been accusing, like, everyone and their brother of profiting off these railway deals, mm-hmm. um, including Joe Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, though in this case, what he had done, which pissed off Joe Martin so much, was that he had reprinted an editorial from the Morden newspaper, oh. which was, like, highly critical of yeah. him. And so Martin sues Luxton and the Free Press Oh no! in both civil and and criminal (laughs) trials so um it does go to trial and luxton um goes in front of a jury and is exonerated okay so he is like no one will stop me from (laughs) talking about the railways (laughs) he's uncovered a web of conspiracy yeah here's the hitch 
Luxon had accepted $40,000 from the CPR. Oh, so he's also being- He's also- (laughs) No, I assume that this was the bit that was going to happen. The twist is that Luxon was also- Surrendering, surrendering to the railway barons. Yes. So what he says is that he accepted their money with the understanding that um, editorial control of the paper would not be swayed. Mm. But uh, I'm different than okay. the <laughs> other people who have surrendered to yeah. rail. <laughs> I'm not like other girls. So I think what actually happened at the time was that like um, CP Rail and like the railway companies in general were not getting along with the provincial government. Mm-hmm. And then they start getting along, and Luxton is like, excuse me. I'm the only one that gets to work with you. Yeah. So, um, definitely his, like, repeated criticisms of railway deal- deals was just rubbing, like, just about everyone the wrong way, yeah. including his, his own business partners at yes. this point. Here's the other hitch. Luxton had taken a loan of $26,000 from another liberal MLA some years prior. <laughs> The loan was coming due, so he had taken it in 1888, had five years to pay it back, so it's coming due in 1893, and he doesn't have the money. Oh, no. So he thinks at this point it will probably be, he'll probably be granted an extension. Because, like, he's paid off, I think, a good chunk of it at this point, so he's like, okay, like, you know, they know I'm good for the money, I just don't have it right now. Yeah. They don't. Oh, no. Because they're so pissed off at him. They're like, stop criticizing my party, right? Yeah. Man, this guy has a lot of audacity to go around. (laughs) I mean, I love it. This is it's the Ginger Snooks way. <laughs> it really is. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely caught off guard when it isn't extended. And he's kind of like, you know, rushing around trying to raise the money, but he can't. And so, therefore, he and the free press have this debt that can't be paid. Obviously, that's a pretty big problem. Yeah. The Tribune begins to cover this saga almost gleefully. I can imagine uh, the Tribune did so much to sabotage the free press (laughs) at every possible turn yeah so they love this yeah of Um, course rumors have been floating around for about two weeks that there's about to be a change at the free press Mm -hmm. so a well-known newspaper man Mm -hmm. that's how they put it Mm -hmm. um so this is frederick molina st john um had registered at a local hotel and only given vague answers as to why he was there oh um, the morning of September 23rd, two members of the board and St. John were seen in enthusiastic conversation and, quote, threshing about an opening and folding of a copy of the free press left no doubt as to what was the object of their talk. <laughs> They're just like very dramatically opening and closing a free press, sure. I guess. Why not? Yeah. Um, the men refused to answer questions from the Tribune. Hmm. So they asked... Um, is it true that Mr. Luxton has severed his connection with the paper? Ooh. Which was the rumor. Uh, they replied, it is true and it is not true. In fact, it is impossible <laughs> for me to say anything about it. <laughs> uh, they go, I'm not telling you. Yeah. I like, it's true and it's not true. <laughs> what a riddle they've had they, given. Had they not invented no comment yet? <laughs> <laughs> they're not asking if they're going to be in the new Spider-Man movie or yeah. not. Like, just tell me. Um, apparently, uh, St. John smiled in a knowing way when asked if he would be the new editor. Oh. So, on the 25th, the news is confirmed. An emergency board meeting had been called and Luxton had been sacked. Uh-oh. And St. John had taken his place as editor. And this is, like, all anyone is talking about, apparently. Yeah, of course. Well, especially in, like, Newspaper Alley, right? Yeah. Um, so, Luxton himself writes into the Tribune. 
which is my favorite thing. And you, oh. had, you had also found um, a pamphlet that they had reprinted separately yes. with this. I didn't read it because I knew it was going to be your topic. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I find that hilarious that he's so annoyed with the free press that he writes to the rival newspaper to complain about how they've treated him. Yep. And as they if, love- like, the Tribune's going to be like, oh, poor you. Yeah, and they love that so much that they print it as a separate pamphlet to be like, <laughs> everyone needs to know about this. What's the headline on that also? Oh, gosh, I don't... I can find it. Can real you quick. find it? Yeah. Okay, so the headline of the pamphlet is The Luxton Expulsion. Why W.F. Luxton has been expelled from the free press and despoiled of the fruits of his life's work. <laughs> it's very intense. Yeah, so Luxton basically says in this that um, the Tribune's account had mostly been accurate, but didn't include everything. He says he had devoted himself to this paper for 21 years. He denies that he had ever sacrificed editorial control to the CPR. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, in fact, because of this, the CPR and the current government, which had now become friendly, saw the need to get rid of him. Oh. So there's basically a conspiracy between the railway companies and the government to <laughs> re- take him away from his <laughs> beloved newspaper. So he says, the fruits of my 21 years work all of which are in the free press, have been confiscated. And besides that, I am turned penniless into the street without an hour's warning. (laughs) Um, He also claimed that he was on yearly contracts, and so the dismissal was also illegal, like that they should have just not renewed his contract. Um, He says, this is extremely dramatic. I had been despoiled of my life's work, all of which had gone as a sacrifice to my manhood. The only capital (laughs) left me. If, I added, they or their principals had hired an assassin to slaughter the dependent members members of my family and myself, whatever in-law, um, their conduct would have been less cruel. I would have rather you kill my family yes. than fire me from my job. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that is exactly what he's saying. <laughs> it's nice he specifies whatever in-law. Like, yeah, take my mother-in-law. Yeah, I don't know why that's part of what he's <laughs> It's like, if you had killed my entire family, including my in-laws, that would have been better than firing me. Um, On the other hand, Luxton's opponents claimed that it was not a surprise at all, that Luxton was running the paper into the ground financially and had should have been able to raise the money needed. So they were saying basically, like, he has all kinds of connections. He knew that this loan was coming due. Mm-hmm. He should have been able to raise yeah. this money. So I don't know. But um, he, yeah, he's forced out. He almost immediately founds another newspaper. The Daily Norwester. The Daily Norwester. And then he founds the Winnipeg Telegram. It wasn't the Tribune. He founds the Telegram. Yeah, the Telegram. Um, Which is a very, very staunchly opposed to the free press and all things and does position themselves right across from the free press office. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so he sells the Norwester. I don't know how long he stays on with the Telegram. Uh, until it folds in 1920. Okay, yeah, and... I think after that, he mainly goes on to work as, like, a business or um, a building inspector. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of, after a while, gets out of the newspaper game. But Good for him. He, he does He does devote a good amount of time and effort to revenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll skip over a few years here because the free press really comes into its own in the kind of early 20th century mm-hmm. after it's purchased by Clifford Sifton. Right. So do you remember when we talked about Clifford Sifton before? Vaguely? He had come up in our William Beale episode. Right. So Clifford Sifton was, I believe, Minister of the Interior under Laurier. So basically, he was the guy who was, like, doing all these campaigns to bring in, like, hardy peasants from Eastern Europe. That's this guy. Um, 
so um, it's actually kind of brilliant that he purchases the free press, right? Because yeah. it's an established paper in an area of the country that is rapidly growing and which he is directly behind rapidly growing. Yeah. Right? So it's like, it's partly a business investment. Yeah. Um, but also, Sifton has set his sights on the conservative Roblin government, who are now in, pa- oh. in, in power in Manitoba. So what better way to influence politics, right? Yeah. Than to have a newspaper under your thumb. Yeah. And a newspaper with a history, right? Yeah, it's, it's been around for a long time. Yeah, it's been around. It's already been a liberal Is paper. Is Defoe working for them by this point? So Sifton hires him um, pretty quickly, like almost immediately. And Defoe is, um, yeah, so we'll talk more about Defoe's background in a little bit. But cool. um, I think Defoe is maybe not quite as cynical as Sifton, if I can say that. Okay. I think, like, they both share political views. But I okay. think Defoe is a little more like, this is this is what I believe. And Sifton is a little more like, you know, means justify the ends kind of yeah. guy. I will tip the scales of politics through yes. my paper. <laughs> and Defoe is like, no, this is what I think is the right thing yeah. to be writing about. Um. Yeah, so Sifton is not an easy person to get along with. Um, in one book, it says, Human beings associated with him were never treated as ends in themselves or as creatures with human dignity and feelings, but always as means to the particular end their employer had in mind. And that Sifton always lectured rather than conversed. Great. He yeah. sounds like a good old New York like robber baron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he was, yeah, not a fun guy. Um and in fact, all of the Siftons seem to have been difficult people. So I, I promised you some vintage beef. Yes, you did. You want to hear some? I mean, we've had some already, but you want some more vintage yes, beef? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, so um, in the 1930s, and we'll, we'll go back to Defoe, but I just want to bring in this ridiculous Sifton drama. Yeah. Um, so James Gray gets a job at the Free Press. So James Gray is another um, repeat character in the podcast. He wrote um, so many books that are often the only source on local history stuff yeah he wrote like the only book on prohibition the only one on like the red light district i'm barely exaggerating when i say the only books yeah (laughs) yeah so uh james gray gets a job at the free press so it's Mm -hmm. him it's him that this beef comes from perfect um so clifford sifton had essentially given the paper to his sons to run so first john and then victor Mm mm-hmm so Gray first says that John Sifter had never been more than a freeloading supernumerary on the free press <laughs> payroll. Um, and also that the presiding genius in all matters commercial was, in fact, Edward H. Macklin, a boozing goateed penny pincher who had built the paper from near bankruptcy to impregnable affluence. So Edward H. Macklin is the business manager of the okay. paper. So The Kenny of his time. <laughs> yeah, essentially. So... Um, well, kind of like John Wright Sifton had been like nominally in charge. Yeah. Macklin had really been behind most of the kind yeah. of financial decisions from what I gather. Unfortunately, by the time James Gray gets there, um, Macklin was getting older and also his lifelong alcoholism was catching up with him. Yeah. So he wasn't really that effective of a leader anymore, I guess. So John Sifton also dies just before James Gray joins okay. the paper. Um, and he's replaced by his brother, Victor Sifton, who is notably worse because he oh, really no. he really wants to have a, a hand in the paper. John Sifton was happy to just kind of sit there and like collect a paycheck, yeah. I think, let people, you know, let things run as they did. Victor Sifton is like, no, I want my people in here. So hmm. he forces Macklin into retirement. Oh, no. And replaces all of the kind of key people with his own allies. Um, who will maintain things essentially the way he wants yeah. them. 
So, I mean, that's not, I don't know, maybe that's not always a bad thing to shake things up, but in this case, it sounds like it was done in a pretty, like, iron-fisted way. Um, So, for instance, they fire a building superintendent who has been with the Free Press for, like, 40 years, and they, which leaves just, like, this one aging janitor to do all of the the building maintenance. This seems like a really solid strategy. Yeah. (laughs) A great way to come into a company, right? (laughs) I want your building to be worse. Yeah. I want it to be dirtier. Let's have less <laughs> less maintenance staff. I want the elevator to break. Yeah. So the newsroom staff only avoid the axe because Defoe, who's the editor and then also the managing editor, um, Ferguson, basically intervene. They yeah. intervene with the Siftons and are like, please don't fire all of the reporters. We need them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is the real beef, though. So... At the time, this is the 1930s, and a lot of um, a lot of workers had had pay cuts in the like early 1930s, yep. at the beginning of the depression, and it's now getting around to like 1938, mm-hmm. and like things are easing up a little bit, like mm-hmm. not not a ton, but yeah. like a lot of those pay cuts are being reversed. Yeah, and so the free press reporters are like, "Hey, we would like our pay cuts reversed," hmm. and that goes well. Oh, it, uh, so, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, they go to Victor Sifton to ask him for more money. Always a fun thing to do to go and ask your boss for more money, mm-hmm. um, especially for the entire staff. So they go to him and they say, hey, you know, we'd like these pay cuts reversed, whatever. And he's like, okay, well, I'll think about it. He comes back to them with a counter proposal. He says, you know, there are around five or six reporters who are getting pretty old. I'm going, how about we force them into retirement? <laughs> And then the $200 a week that they're earning will be divvied up among the rest of the staff. <laughs> so this is this is the proposal he offers them, that you can decide, essentially, to fire six of your oldest colleagues. Oh, God. And then we will pay you more money. Did they take it? Um, the only thing that he says in his thing is that they were, like, too cowardly to respond. I think they just left and were like, oh, we don't know. So I think it just didn't happen. I mean, it's probably for the best for the old free press employees. Yes. Yeah. And like some of them also like weren't old enough to collect a pension yet. Oh, no. Yeah. So it would not have been great. Um, He also removes their Christmas bonuses without providing any notice. Oh, this is some Scrooge stuff. Right? It's just fully like Ebenezer Scrooge owns the free press for (laughs) some reason. So this is, yeah, to the great chagrin of the staff. Um, yeah, so that being said, Clifford Sifton, um, and the Siftons, I guess, do one very positive thing for the pre-press, which was hiring Defoe. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think he's a pretty genuine kind of, like, regs to, like, not quite riches story. Though he had, like, a nice house on Wellington Crescent, eh? Um, so he was born to a poor family in 1866. He was also, the way it's phrased is born tongue-tied. I don't, I don't know medically what that means. Oh. But essentially he, like, I guess had, I don't want to call it a deformity. I feel like that's not the the 2022 term for, for something yeah. being wrong with your tongue. But anyway. But essentially he had a medical condition which meant that he couldn't speak properly for several years. Yeah. Um, during his childhood. So he had, like, several operations to fix this, but it led to him becoming very kind of, like, introspective and thoughtful. Yeah. And he read a lot of books. And so this was, um, you know, pretty meaningful in terms of, like, how he grew up, I guess. Yeah. Um, so he, um, actually also begins as a teacher. He becomes a teacher in a small town after the previous teacher in this, um, area had apparently died of drink. Okay. Good old early Canada, eh? 
Yeah, a nice roll school. Very yeah. isolated. Yeah, apparently he just, like, showed up and the guy had left behind just, like, a couple, like, boxes of books. And he was like, all right, got to pick up yeah. here. Um, But in 1883, he sees an opening in the Montreal Weekly Star for a young man of high ambitions and applies. Ooh. The managing editor wrote back, uh, interested, asking for a photograph, quote, to enable me to form an estimate of your character. That's not important. I just thought it was interesting. Weird. Yeah. Weird. That's not normally how job interviews work. No, you're like, send me a photo. I want to see if you're cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess he must have liked the photo if he he ever sent one because he did hire him on. So, um. Defoe goes on to have some kind of bad luck in love. He ends up moving. Um, so that's why he ends up in the beginning working for the Manitoba Free Press. So he actually oh. works briefly for the Free Press just like on the staff. Oh. Goes on to other things. So by the time um, Defoe hires him, he's had experience at a number of papers and he's yeah. really made uh, a name for himself. Um, and yeah, like I said, he he did share Sifton's political views mm-hmm. as a liberal um, and dedicated himself to this fight with Roblin that Sifton wanted to have. Nice. Yeah. So Roblin describes the free press as diabolical, black, and treacherous. <laughs> Bold move from the guy responsible for the legislative scandal. Yeah, they do not They do not get along. Unfortunately, Roblin, um, or I guess fortunately, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum, but unfortunately for Defoe, um, Roblin does win his elections. He's in office, I think, 1900 to 1915, something like yeah. that. Um, but Defoe and the paper still kind of made a name for themselves as this, like, opposition paper, yeah. right? Um. And Defoe spoke on issues of immigration and education. These are all things that were very relevant to the early 1900s in Winnipeg. Um, He advocated for policies that would help settlers in the West. I don't want to kind of, like, overemphasize, like, this is still, like, kind of like a colonial white dude. But, like, you know, he's advocating for better standard of living for immigrants. I will say, too, in our episode on, like, uh, fascism in the 1930s, Defoe was one of the ones who was anti-Hitler when most newspapers weren't. Yes, so that's, yes, that's exactly where I was going next, so I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, the free press rails against British foreign policy um, prior to the Second World War. Hmm. Um, So part of this also is, like, Defoe is kind of, like, nationalistic. Like, not in the pejorative sense, but in the sense that he wanted Canada to, like, be its own thing and not a British subject, right? Um, But, yeah, I think this, like, emboldened him in terms of speaking out against the, like, presiding view in terms of the Second World War. So, um, yeah, like, they are really, really um, forcefully against the policy of appeasement. Mm-hmm. And, like, trying to highlight the racial prejudice, which is, like, pretty significant in 1930s, right? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the only reporters and one of the only papers in Canada doing this, basically. 100%. Um, at one point, they print a breakdown of a Nazi, what they call a Nazi primer, with, like, a Nazi children's textbook to be like, look, here it is. This is their beliefs. Yeah. Um, he's not out and about calling Hitler's hands soft or whatever the other yeah, papers were doing. right. Before the Munich Agreement, he writes that um, this may be a concession with which Hitler, quote, will regard as merely obliging him to wait with impatience for another opening, which is pretty prescient. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, that you say like the other papers because um, the other papers are printing things saying like, oh, people are cheering everywhere about the Munich Agreement. So mm-hmm. September 30th um, of 1938 is when the Munich Agreement is signed. 
Um, and this is what gives Hitler um, Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. So a portion of Czechoslovakia. And so all of these other papers are printing like, oh, people are cheering. You know, war has been averted. And what the free press prints is an editorial, which is probably um, Defoe's kind of most cited editorial Mm -hmm. called What's the Cheering For? So this is where um, he calls um, the Munich Agreement a project of dismembering a state by processes of bloodless aggression. This is what I was talking about. I was trying to search for that earlier. Right, yes. Um, I used this article in my episode, too. I'm glad we got to come back to it. You can. Uh, All right, excellent. Okay, I'll finish (laughs) up with this, and then we'll we'll come back to it. Um, Yeah, so he argues that the English do not understand the lengths to which Nazis are willing to go to in the interests of nationalism Mm -hmm. and Aryanism. Um, He says, Austria yesterday, Czechoslovakia today, what of tomorrow and the day after? He lays out that promises and agreements have already been broken by Hitler, and uh, ultimately argues that Great Britain and France have essentially sanctioned, that's um, a direct quote, sanctioned, the Nazi idea that they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty strong condemnation. It's a very strong condemnation. And I think like what's important is that this isn't necessarily a popular take at this point. No, like financially it would be bad and politically it would be bad because people in the government are appeasing Hitler to avoid war. A hundred percent. People don't want another war. The First World War is not that long ago at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about, like, our distance from 9-11, that's an even longer distance between yeah. this point here and, right, and yeah. the First World War, right? And that's still something that is pretty prominent in people's yeah. minds. Um, yeah, so in that way, you know, it wasn't necessarily, like, the business decision that was a good thing for him to do at that point but i think it does like as the years pass and war does come as it turns out cements the free press as um yeah an important paper that's willing to say what needs to be said yeah and defoe dies um unfortunately in 1944 so he doesn't get to see the end of the war Mm -hmm. which is pretty unfortunate um and there's an outpouring of respect so even the tribune prints uh several tributes to him which is quite nice that's polite of them yeah (laughs) there's a uh defoe chair Still at the free press. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. You can go and sit and have a think. Aw. Yeah. Yeah. He sounds like he was kind of just like a, often just kind of like a rumpled old guy. And yeah. The, <laughs> like, a good old timey reporter. I, I think I read that he turned down a knighthood at one point. Wow. Um, because he said he like still shoveled his own driveway at his house. <laughs> like. He... <laughs> It's just kind of like an old guy who was like, no, I'm going to say my I might be in charge of one of the biggest papers in the West, but I shovel my driveway. And I I feed my own furnace. That was the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I've got on the early years of the free press. Good. That was really fun. Thank you. Defoe's always so interesting to talk about. Yeah, and there was like, there's a lot more we could talk about about him. No, I feel like the theme of mine or my stuff is like, we could do bigger episodes on all of these things. Totally. If we wanted to. The free press is really interesting, and everyone that worked there is cool. Yeah, and And again, it's 150 years of history. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. They were a major player in a lot of stuff. And actually, um, the first person we're talking about also helped cement the free press as a major player. It's Cora Hind! Nice. I love Of course it is. Yeah. Um, If you're, like, at all familiar with Winnipeg history, you've probably heard Cora Hines' name at some point. Yeah. She was the first female reporter in Western Canada. She was involved. We may have mentioned her in the Nellie McClung episode. I think so. Yeah. If you didn't, I for sure brought her up. Yeah. Um, She was involved in the women's suffrage movement, Mm -hmm. in the uh, temperance movement, so fighting for prohibition. She was a fairly, like, active and respected political speaker. 
but what she is mostly known for is being really, really good at writing about grain. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to, it sounds glib, but like genuinely it's an asset for the free press at a time oh, yeah. when Manitoba's entire economy is based on grain. Well, our first um, like coat of arms has like a little little grain on it. Yeah. A little, little sheath of wheat or whatever. Yeah. This was like a big thing. It was a good skill to have. So Hine didn't always want to be a reporter. When she came to Manitoba in 1882, she was 21. She was coming from rural Ontario and she wanted to be a teacher. Okay. But it's she funny that seems to be how a lot of these people start. I guess there's I, jobs for teaching. Way, yeah, and I guess maybe it's an easy way to an education. I, don't I know. think so. Yeah. Um, regardless, uh, Hind fails the algebra component of the oh, teacher's no. exam and cannot become one. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, deeply relatable as someone that's not good at algebra. <laughs> <laughs> so she tra- uh, she changes tacks and then she heads to the free press offices. Okay. Where she meets Luxton. Ah. Uh, Luxton knows her father vaguely, just Canada. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> there were like three people, people here then. <laughs> yeah. So apparently Luxton was like fairly polite until she revealed she was there to apply for a job. Oh. And then he turned kind of sour and he told her that the job involved hard, often rough work, late hours, and sometimes involved meeting not quite nice people. And that the job was not suitable for a woman. Classic. So she gets turned away. Yeah. Hind was not deterred. Um, there's a story published in a 1979 biography that I cannot prove. That at some point not long after, she submits an article to Luxton to be published, and he agrees to publish it, but without her name on it. So there's okay. no, like, byline, but there might be an article of hers in the paper. There's Interesting. Just, obviously, there's no way to prove right. this. Yeah. Um, but what she does after this is she finds the new hot invention on the market, the typewriter. Oh. She rents her own <laughs> typewriter for a month, <laughs> and she gets really, really good at typing. Okay. And the typewriter is, like, the newest invention to, like, sweep the office world. Everyone's taking notes by hand even for years afterwards. Right. So I guess if you show up and you're really good at typing, that's It's good. Also, um, in rural or sort of Western Canada, there's not, like, standardized cursive taught in schools. Oh. So I don't know if you've tried to read anyone's old handwriting from, say, like, pre-1890. I've always been very glad that most of the time periods I've studied have been post-typewriter. I once genuinely changed the time period of an essay because I'm like, oh, if I go too early, I have to read a bunch of handwritten notes. (laughs) So the typewriter makes things a lot clearer. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, Hind got good at the two-finger hunt and peck method, which is... Uh, Yeah, we all know that's the one our (laughs) our grandparents do. If you ever watch your uh, grandma type at a computer, it's... Hey, my dad hunts and packs. Like yeah, think, uh, he was the president of a company okay. and still hunt and packs. My yeah. little sister does. Yeah, she. Wow. I think. Well, it's funny because I think I was in the exact right age period that like we had dedicated computer classes. Yeah. And I think by the time, and also I spent like hours on MSN. Yeah. And I think my little sister was young enough that they were like, "No, we don't do that anymore. Kids just know how to use computers." So she didn't do typing classes. My mom made us like practice typing really? over the summer. Yeah. Like, huh. you got to do your hours of typing this week. I was wow. like, yeah, yeah we did, me and my we did sister. Whatever, like an hour a week, we did all the right type. In the yeah. <laughs> yep, we had typing yeah. classes. Did you, so do you remember Mavis Beacon's typing CD-ROM? Oh, no. the name is familiar, but I don't. Well, Mavis Beacon was not a real person. Oh. It was like a photo of a black woman. That's so funny. And they named it Mavis Beacon's, like, learn how to type CD-ROM. <laughs> and she wasn't real at all. <laughs> And we, I worked at Radio Shack, and we sold it. And like, yeah. I used to blow people's minds by telling them that she I was like, "What? Like, I trusted Mavis to teach me." 
So Honey did not have Mavis speak. And this no, is apparently all, not. This is all self-taught, <laughs> yeah. which is probably why she's doing the hunt and peck method. Because I know, like, when you get into, like, the 60s and 70s, they're teaching typewriter classes with the, like, the quick brown fox yeah. sort of thing. Um, while she's sort of practicing, she also sort of gets involved in uh, other local groups. She gets involved with the Young Persons Association, which is, like, the YMCA. Starts talking about temperance and doing some public speaking stuff. Um... She speaks at on women's suffrage pretty early on. She's talking about it as early as 1891. Wow. Um, she also suggests that anyone who doesn't vote for two years should be banned from voting for the two following years. Oh, my God. Which is an interesting strategy because I don't know if that's a disincentive to voting. No, that if you're already not voting, they're like, well, now you can't vote. You can't vote harder. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> also, that seems like a lot of math would be involved. You're like, wait, did you vote last time? Okay, no. There's, like, a three-year ban now. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't impose this solution. It's one of the weirder voting ideas I've heard. Sure. Um, Listen, not all the ideas can be good. (laughs) You try, you know. (laughs) Um, She gets involved with the women's suffrage for a long time. She works with Nellie McClung and Emily Carr, who are both members of the Famous Five, which is obviously in your episode on women's right to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, Hines' arguments are that, like, women should vote, that casting a ballot's not going to distract from their domestic duties. And then reminded people that not every woman had a cradle to mind. Like, not every woman is at home. Yeah. Which is noteworthy because Hein doesn't get married. Oh, really? Never. No, I'll double check that, but I'm pretty sure she doesn't. Because <laughs> I know she doesn't have kids. And she, yeah. like, lived alone. No, I mean, that, that checks out. But, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, fairly unusual at the time. Yeah, so she is unmarried. She doesn't have a cradle to mind. Yeah. So she wants to vote. It's very Virginia Woolf of her. Ooh, yeah, it is. Okay. So she speaks um, at a sort of big event in 1893 at Victoria Hall to a crowd of politicians about women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. And she uh, quotes George Eliot to say, if women are mostly fools, I suppose God Almighty made them to match the men. (laughs) Pretty good. Which is nice. And then her final point at this rally was that Manitoba should grant women the right to vote before other provinces do. So we'd be the first. And I love that argument to be like, what if we get it before everyone yeah. else does? Oh, can we start doing, yeah. What, would that work for other political stuff? We could try. Be like, let's get a universal income first. <laughs> it's a race and we're going to win it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously she's doing more than just like practicing typing. She mostly has that typewriter for a month. Once mm-hmm. she gets good, she sends it back. Okay. Also, it's weird you can rent typewriters. Yeah. I mean, you can... You can borrow things, like, you can borrow, like, musical <laughs> instruments from the library. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But this would be, like, through a company, not a library. That's true. It's that interesting to think about, yeah. like, writing to some typewriter company to be like, one month, please. Yeah. <laughs> I used to rent VCRs. Right, yeah. Like, from the yeah, video that's, store, that's yeah. I think we rent less stuff now. Yeah. 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 Um, by virtue, though, of being one of the only people in Winnipeg who has had typewriter experience, she very quickly like, gets a job with a local lawyer, Hugh McDonald. Okay. Hugh McDonald is the son of John A. McDonald, our first prime minister. He's a lawyer in Winnipeg at the time, and Cora Hine becomes his typist. Of Dalnavert? Yeah, of Dalnavert The very same? The very same. So Cora Hine worked for him for a bit. She was the only typist west of the Great Lakes. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. Not a lot of them. Um, She made $6 an hour. Okay. Which is, that's a lot for the time. What year is this? 1891. Oh, that's, that's actually, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, That's good for 1981. Like yeah. six dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, James Gray complains about how he was hired on the promise of fifty dollars a week and only got twenty dollars a week. So oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
after she starts working for McDonald's, she forms uh, Western Canada's first public stenography bureau, which is based out of the McIntyre block on Main Street, which I mentioned mostly because there's that National Film Board documentary on the McIntyre block, like a month before it closes, where it's about all of the weird tenants in a fairly decrepit office building in the 80s. There's like a weird dentist and a fortune teller. I love those weird buildings. Yeah, so uh, in 1890, it's a new office, and it's fairly nice. So she's, like, alongside lawyers and, like, fairly upscale people. Um, It works out pretty well for Hind. Because she was raised on a farm, she also knew a lot about farming. So a lot of her clients are farmers. Mm -hmm. That's where she makes the bulk of her money. Uh, She gets involved with the Dairy Association. She's their secretary. Uh, She starts sending articles into the free press at some point. She writes an article on the Mennonites of Manitoba for the Winnipeg Colonists, which is a different paper at the time. And then uh, in 1901, Luxton's gone. He's been ousted. Yep. And has been replaced by Defoe. Mm-hmm. And Defoe is the one who offers Hind a job as their agricultural correspondent. Okay. He's the one that brings her on. Good for him. So she gets a job in 1901. She works there for the next 41 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's there for a long time. And, like, she becomes fairly famous for her work with the free press. So her job involves sort of going around Western Canada and inspecting crops to make a prediction about the annual yield. Okay. And, and does she? how does she know about crops? She grew up on a farm. Oh, okay. Just like homegrown. school. Yeah. yeah. The old way you learn. Right. From working on a farm when your family is farmers. Yeah. And, uh, so she makes these predictions and they wind up kind of impacting sort of the industry for the year because what Heinz says is often right. And that mm. will then set the prices of wheat, more okay. or less. Uh, she gets the nickname the Oracle of Wheat. <laughs> and That's the most Manitoban thing I've ever isn't heard. It? So her first estimate comes in 1904. There's something called black rust sweeping the prairies. And an American report says that there's going to be maybe 34 million bushels of wheat that year. Hind and Defoe disagree, and they send Hind out into the field to investigate. Hmm. Hind's guess is that there would be somewhere around 50 to 55 million bushels. Okay. There's 54 million. Wow. She's like (laughs) uncannily accurate. That's crazy. She says it's just beginner's luck. But the next year she guesses 85 million, and there is 84.5 million. Wow. So, like, genuinely... incredible skill to have yeah so this becomes her job she travels for kilometers in rural areas she's taking like horse and buggy or foot or train like she's not taking cars right so she starts dressing sort of in menswear which is unusual for the time Hmm. the most like famous picture of hind you see is her standing in a field with her like stetson hat and her sort of fringe leather jacket and she's wearing pants we'll have to put that one up on the on the website because she has to walk through like muddy fields all day it's a practical dress for her to have and there is a memoir by uh, Joseph Wilder, who was a newsboy in Winnipeg around the time that Hind was writing. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read it in a while, but the story, I think, goes something like when there was a Hind article in the free press, all the newsboys would fight over which one got to go to the grain exchange. Yeah. Because that grain exchange corner would sell out if there was a Hind article. Wow. So all of these like scrappy little newsboys were sort of duking it out over who got to go <laughs> <laughs> to the grain exchange for once. Um, She becomes like pretty famous uh the western canadian livestock union gives her uh thirteen hundred dollars the wool growers association give her a flock of lambs she gets an honor flock of lambs probably just like we're like this is yours now but we still have it i don't know i have no idea it's not mentioned what's done with it did she live in the city yeah okay she has an apartment in winnipeg so maybe she doesn't want a flock of lambs no probably not uh she gets an honorary degree from the u of m she becomes a doctor cool and most of her articles are just about grain yeah. Or life on the farm. She's pretty sympathetic to like the isolation of rural women on the farm, I think, because sure. she grew up mm-hmm. in that environment. 
And then she's regularly involved in women's suffrage. So she's in the mock parliament in 1914. Yeah. She's at the Walker Theater with everyone else. She also writes several books on agriculture. Uh, she goes on a world tour from 1935 to 1937 where she visits uh, Europe, Russia, Australia, South America, Africa. She is all over the place writing wow. about different farms. Hmm. Uh, in Russia, she kept remarking on how badly dressed everyone was and then kept going, but they sure are strong. <laughs> it was very funny. So while she's traveling, she writes these letters back to the free press. She becomes like a travel correspondent. So she's like, here I am like in Kenya today. Here's what I ate. Right. Here's the time I got like a hamburger in Hamburg. <laughs> okay. That's very cute. <laughs> yeah. They all like have some reek of colonialism about them, especially in Africa mm. where it's like fair. Yeah. They, their conditions could be improved by us. Yeah. One of those things. Not not super shocking. But uh, it's an interesting book. It would be worth covering at some point. It's mm-hmm. a fun little, like, travel journal. Yeah. She's also seven in her 70s when she does this. Okay. So she's, like, wow. old. Yeah. That's, a lo- that's sort of a long age to be traveling for two years. She's yeah. gone for two years and then comes home and uh, goes back to work. But her health starts to decline not long after because she's in her mid-70s. And was just traveling for two years. Yeah. And spends a lot of her youth sort of traipsing through fields. Mm-hmm. She does get involved in uh, the Red Cross to help soldiers overseas. And then in 1942, at 81 years old, she passes away after a stroke. Wow. And this is literally front page news. Like, her mm. death is the headline in the free press. There's a full page obituary on her. The Tribune has a really long one as well. The Grain Exchange holds a moment of silence. Like, multiple people come out to be like, this is one of the greatest Canadian women. Wow. Very, very prominent. It's a wild legacy to have. Yeah. Um, and the fun twist is that her next year reporters both overlap with Hind while she's with the free press. I mean, I feel like they would have to. That's a long time. Everyone did, I think. Like, Um, she was there, like, Defoe was there for, like, 43 She was there about as long as Defoe. Like, hiring her would have been sort of er one of his earlier moves. Yeah, hey. And, like, good on him. Yeah. Because that makes the free press into a sort of, like, global grain expert, basically. Um, Our next... Uh, reporter is maybe a little less like globally significant she is a home economics reporter from the 1930s oh how fun yeah um she was only with the free press for a little while in 1935 to 1939 but it's a fun little story about sort of life in winnipeg okay her name is madeline day and she comes to winnipeg at a time when domestic labor okay like housework is sort of a science Mm. it's domestic sciences there's schools yeah it's a thing you can perfect right and I have to say... Maybe I won't hate housework if I learn it good enough. If I'm trained. Yeah. If I respect it as an art form. <laughs> uh, Eva Wozni with the Free Press did a really good biography. That's where a lot of this came from. Oh, cool. She did most of the digging, which mm. is great. That's always nice. Yes. So as um, a Free Press reporter, Day uh, published recipes and actually ran a test kitchen out of the Free Press offices on the fourth floor. Oh, I love that. Day was not from Winnipeg. She was born in rural Illinois and raised in Chicago. Um, we don't know a whole lot about her life. At some point, she goes to uh, Paris mm-hmm. to study and then comes home around the First World War and gets married to Robert Day in 1916. They have a daughter in Montana, and they divorce in 1930 after a fairly unhappy marriage. At which point, um, Day leaves her daughter with her parents to go study at the DeBoth Homemaker School. Mm-hmm. They travel around doing presentations on cooking and housekeeping. It's like a, a road show. That's interesting to be like... um 
like writing and or, or like learning and teaching about like domestic science when you're living a kind of unorthodox life in some ways. Yeah, this is actually going to be one of my points okay. too. Is that like it's a weird thing where she is presenting herself to the public as like a model homemaker who is mm-hmm. good at like raising a child and keeping a husband happy, but she had divorced her husband because he was bad and like never saw her child. Mm-hmm. It's a weird persona to put on, and like obviously no one's like digging too deeply into it because it doesn't. No, not I mean not back then. Not back then, I'm sure Maybe now. Today. Yeah. Can you imagine if there was a social media influencer who was like, I am so good at raising my kid, and then you find out like her kid has been like deep faked into her yeah. TikToks or something? I don't <laughs> know. Like how a cardboard cutout of a child? <laughs> yes. Because huh. I feel like that's kind of the comparison. Yeah. So she uh, travels around for a while. She comes to Winnipeg first in 1933 at the Winnipeg Tribune's cooking school. Mm. It is their third annual cooking school. They put it on at... Um, oh, it's like an event. It's an it's a four-day event. Oh, wow. It's long. So the DeBot Institute wants to elevate home cooking through science and dramatization. <laughs> oh, science and dramatization. So it means, like, basically a YouTube cooking channel, but... Okay. In real life. Yeah. So the Institute would get advertised in local papers to, like, sell refrigerators and stoves and sponsor the event and they would come to the town rent a venue have a cooking show with like use Keen's dry mustard yeah (laughs) and then there would be a fashion show from a local dress shop and like unreal prizes like you can win a gas stove yeah (laughs) so uh the bay is organizing stuff like this around that time too and they have a like fourth floor showroom right with a movie theater, so they often have, like, little cooking demonstrations there as well. So it's not, like, uncommon to do mm. this. The uh, Tribune's first cooking show is at the Pantages Playhouse, so they are, like, really leading to, like, the theater of it. Right, like, is there someone, like, on stage cooking? Yes, there's someone on wow. stage cooking. Well, like, everyone's kind of, like, looking on. Yeah. Interesting. And apparently, like, getting very into it. Right. Um, their first show is four days long, it's three afternoons and one evening, where women could la- uh, learn new ways to economize in the preparation of food and charming ways to serve it. What year is this again? 1931. Okay, checks out then that they were like, here's how to economize. Well, economize yeah, yeah, it's a time when people are changing their diets and cutting down on things and yeah. having to learn how to, like, make I'm do ass- with less. I'm and- assuming, like, how do I make meals without beef so my husband won't get mad? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, what a sad reality. <laughs> um... According to the Tribune, who was reporting on this, at the Chicago show they'd done, there had been something like 22,000 women in attendance. Wow. It's like, people come out to this. There's not a report on how many people were coming to these Winnipeg shows. Yeah. Um, the earlier shows in 1931 and 32 had uh, Claire Andre, who was presenting to people, who was promising to teach how to make light cakes and novel sandwiches. Oh. I don't know what a novel sandwich looks like, but given 1930s cooking, I'm a little scared to learn. They're like, uh, yeah. It could be it could be like cucumber and cream cheese, how novel. Or it could be like Put it in gelatin. Pudding and gelatin and sardines. <laughs> Cube up some lemon jello, put it between two things of rye bread, cover it in mayo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the giveaways at the Winnipeg shows are pretty impressive. You can get small stuff like a ham. Alright. A thing of ginger ale, some flowers, but then like stoves at the 1933 show the grand prizes are a choice of a fridge range or radio from northern electric cool. a choice of an electric washer a vacuum or floor polisher two chests of 1847 silver and then 1847 teaspoons just like cutlery i feel like an electric washer would be like a game changer right? in the 1930s Man. um a year's supply of rinso for rinso. doing laundry oh. 
and then community silver so silverware yeah which is nice they're advertising the show to like um housewives or like brides mm-hmm. to like here's how like you can get your stuff to furnish your house a new right. thing of like cutlery for your new home and in 1933, they get bumped up to the Winnipeg Auditorium. Mm. So it is a big venue. And the theme of the show was definitely the wonders of refrigeration. <laughs> Classic. Is this full of jello? Uh, not full of jello, okay. but um, anyone who got a um, fridge by the end of May, it's like an ad in conjunction with the show. If you yeah. buy a fridge, you get daily delivery of milk until September. Huh. Pretty good deal. Yep. Uh, there's also a contest to name a magic mystery cake and win $250. <laughs> the cake is just like flour, baking powder, coffee, and then you fold in egg whites. So it's a coffee cake, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's a coffee cake, but you have to come up with a name for it. Uh. I couldn't find any of the suggested names. Uh. I tried really hard. <laughs> and the Tribune ad for these is very funny. It's like, we only want the name of the cake. Please do not send us your cake. Do not make this and send it to us. <laughs> So I'm wondering if that had happened before an earlier attempt at advertising and yeah. someone just sent them a cake in the mail and they were like, no, we don't want this. <laughs> so two years after this presentation, Day comes to Winnipeg again, this time with the Free Press's first ever cooking school. And the Free Press really sells this as an event. Really? Yes. Um, this is their sort of blurb on it. This week in the auditorium at the Free Press Cooking and Homemaking School, thousands of Winnipeg housewives will learn how the burden of their work can be turned into the delicate craftsmanship of one of the greatest arts in the world. It is more than just an art. It is a passion, the alpha and omega of our material lives. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, it's kind of ridiculous, but I also kind of get it. Like, the the dream that, like, oh, the, like, drudgery of this daily life yep. could actually be, like, something that, like, is fun and that I'm proud of. And, like... Yep. Based on what I've seen from old ads, the trick is just to take, like, a lot of speed. Yeah. <laughs> Some mother's little helpers. Yeah. Speed speed and tranquilizers at, yes. at varying intervals. And then it becomes fun. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Victor Sifton actually welcomes Madeline Day to the auditorium. Okay. Uh, there's 4,100 people waiting to get in. People are turned away at the door. And Day's demonstration here is how to make a banana meatloaf. Okay. Gross. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jen tried that. Oh, yes, she totally she did. did. Yeah, my wife, uh, full disclosure, my wife is employed by the Free Press uh, and has nothing to do with this. Uh, but no, she has not colored the contents of the episode. No, not at all. But yeah, she tried that uh, banana meatloaf. And I think she said it wasn't terrible. Okay. Yeah, I watched the video and yeah. I was like, it's okay. Yeah. Wait, I have to know, is this like a meatloaf with banana in it? Or is it like substituting banana for meat? It's be- It has bacon in it. Okay. It's meat and bananas. Weird. Did you did you try it? No, no. no. I think her and Eva did the video. Maybe, yeah. They did. yeah. She didn't bring you home some. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from Eva's article. Um, an audible gasp rippled through the auditorium when Day unveiled the finished loaf. Wow. <laughs> filled with diced banana, topped with bacon and brown to perfection. The dish was served with baked canned pears, filled with cream cheese, and garnished with maraschino cherries and mint jelly. May. <laughs> what was up with people around the middle of the century? And maraschino cherries. I don't know. I have to ask. Like, were they just like, wow, cherry, like, fruit that comes in a jar? I guess. Let's put it on everything. It's fancy. Yeah. It's a little treat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. It's very weird. That sounds a little like, you know, on Friends, when she makes half of, um, half a shepherd's pie and half a trifle? Yes. It sounds a little like that. Like, layer of meat, layer of bananas, yeah. layer of maraschino cherries. Um, I did not have time today because I was doing 
uh, normal person chores, so I couldn't do this. I was going to make you one of her recipes. <laughs> it was hard because you are a vegetarian, yes. so I can't serve you anything with gelatin. No. Uh, so what I found was a cheese peanut loaf. <laughs> okay. The ingredients are six slices of stale bread. Ah! <laughs> great. Off to a great start. One cup of milk. One cup grated cheese. Okay. Any cheese. Any cheese. I'm assuming they mean cheddar. Yeah. Um, half a cup peanut butter. Huh. Two tablespoons butter. Two eggs. You, you know what? I think it could be okay. How do you think you prepared this dish? Okay. Like, is there a name that you're giving me or you've just told me the ingredients? Cheese peanut loaf. Cheese peanut loaf. Put it all in a dish and bake it? I don't know. You were not too far off. Uh, cut the crust uh, from the bread into strips and to fit into a loaf pan. Okay. Arrange a layer of bread, uh, a layer of cheese, dot thickly with the peanut butter. Repeat until all ingredients are used having the bread for the top layer. Beat eggs and add the milk. Pour over the bread until slightly moistened. Ugh. Bake until firm. Huh. <laughs> Um, if you, if you made it, I would try it. I'm, one day uh, I'll make it. <laughs> um, okay. Here's the thing. I, here's why I think it could be okay. I feel like peanut butter tastes good with the surprising amount of things that you would yes. not think it tastes good with. No, I think it's probably okay. But think about the preparation of it. Like no. the lasagna is really what threw me. <laughs> and the like, you're like, take the stale bread, put milk on oh. it. So it's soggy. Like, but I guess also in terms of like the 1930s, you don't want to waste that bread, true. right? You you're need to like, find ways yeah. to use all of yeah, that. Yeah. What do I do with my soggy bread? That's true. My soggy bread. No, this does also call for cheese, which is like, that's fancy people food. Well, any cheese, whatever cheese yeah. you can get your hands on. <laughs> so after uh, Day's presentation in 1935, she becomes a regular with the free press. She posts recipes, housekeeping tips in Shares advice on what produce is good in Winnipeg all the time. So, like, here's where you can find rhubarb and, like, nice. what time you should use it. There's advice for canning, canning, pickling, preserving, and lots to do with, like, saving money during the Great Depression, which seems like it would have been, like, a very helpful tip. There was um one <laughs> recipe called Man Supper Salad, <laughs> which is peas, green beans, celery, pimentos, green pepper, spring onions, mayo, atop a bed of lettuce. No... <laughs> There was also uh, the royal salad where you take cabbage, pineapples, nuts, and marshmallows, and then you mix everything with mayo and then put it on a bed of lettuce. They're just, they're confusing their savories and their sweets. It's a lot of mayo. There's a lot of mayo. And the lettuce seems to be like a bed of it. So like I guess like mayo, like if you have backyard chickens, is a good, you know. Yeah, it's not like a hard thing to get or make. Yeah. But man, oh man, it's a lot of mayo. Yeah. Um, have I ever told you about the worst salad I ever had? Oh, I can't. Was it in Germany? Yes. Because <laughs> I told you my dad also had a really bad salad yes. in Germany. It was in Austria. We hadn't eaten all oh, day. Oh, in Austria. Sorry. It was close. We yeah. had just been in Germany the day before. Uh, I was 18. We hadn't had food mm-hmm. that day. And we we're like, we want something nice and light. Because if we eat anything heavy, we're going to like vomit. It's the middle of summer. It's hot. We're starving. So we go to this restaurant and their options for salads are like a ham salad, a ham and cheese salad. So I'm like, I don't know, a ham and cheese salad? (laughs) And what I get is four leaves of lettuce in a bowl and then, like, mayonnaise mixed with ham and cheese. (laughs) I have a picture of it. It's one of my favorite photos of that trip because it's like, what is this? 
So similarly, when my my dad was on a business trip to Germany and he said he like wasn't feeling well, like hadn't eaten, you know, like had just been eating like, you know, heavy restaurant food for days. Right. Yeah. So he's at a restaurant and yeah, the only salad they had was a tomato salad. My dad doesn't like tomatoes, but I think he figured it would be like like, you know, leafy greens with some tomatoes. It was not. (laughs) It came and it was a plate of chopped tomatoes with chunks of cheese on it. (laughs) So he was just like eating like a little bit of tomato and oh, he'd like eat some cheese. Like Like kind of a caprese. I guess, but just like cheddar cheese. Oh, no. No, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a salad at all. That's $5 for nonsense. So, yeah, some of the recipes remind me a lot of that, where it's like, ah, oh, just like a leaf of lettuce. Mm-hmm. And then mayonnaise, whatever you have in your house. It's a lot of beds of lettuce there. Yeah. I guess it's easy to grow. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you can make a more substantial salad with more. Just, please just chop the lettuce. Like an increased lettuce ratio yeah. <laughs> to whatever else is in it. Maybe less maraschino cherries. Yeah. Uh, to test the recipes, the Free Press opens a test kitchen in September of 1935. Uh, in a sunny corner of the fourth floor. Okay. It's got uh, two stoves, a fridge, and it's described as being a cheerful and attractive spot. And Winnipeggers are encouraged to pop in during working hours and oh. ask day questions about, like, housework. That's really fun. And then they restrict the hours to Wednesday from 2 to 5. Oh, okay. Because she has to work. Yeah. And, like, write letters. She's doing recipes every Friday. Wow. That are, like, seasonally themed, so, like... You will probably have a lot of rhubarb in your garden. Here are mm-hmm. things you can do with it. Here are the holidays. Here's like a cheap thing you can make for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Here's something a new wife can do. That actually a... would be like a really useful service. No, I know. I'm like, this would have been like great. I guess like it's kind of like going through all of the flyers in Winnipeg. Yeah. But she's done all of the work of going through the flyers and being right. like, here are all of the good deals. Here's what you can then do with it. Yeah. Like if someone right now were writing like Winnipeg specific, like here's what's on sale at Superstore this week and here's a yeah. dinner you can make with that. Do you think someone is and we just aren't aware because we don't read the paper that often? Could be. Because <laughs> we're uh, If someone's doing that, please tell us. We'd like it. Yeah. <laughs> As two people have to try and grocery shop on their own. And- uh. <laughs> <laughs> So they keep doing these annual cooking schools every year in, like, April, March-ish. And there's normally, like, 4,000 people in attendance at these things. So, like, the auditorium sells out. Mm-hmm. And crowds of people come to watch Day make all kinds of recipes and, like, check out what's new on the homemaking market. Right. There's one event where husbands get to come. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then her final article with the Free Press is December 30th, 1939. And she leaves a fruitcake recipe as a parting gift. Aww. One of her readers sent it in. That's and she found it was like a good, steady recipe. Oh. And it is so popular that 18 years later, people still write to the free press for this fruitcake recipe. <laughs> so it sounds normal. I feel like we should try and make it at some point. Yeah. Uh, she... Nice for like Christmas or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's our Christmas bonus episode is we make a fruitcake. Make a fruitcake, yeah. <laughs> Why not? And then we find out we don't like fruitcake. Yeah, could be. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Um, after leaving the free press, Day writes for the Vancouver Sun for a little bit, and then she returns to Chicago after being diagnosed with cancer. Mm. She dies in 1945 at 54 years old. Um, her granddaughters, who didn't really know her at all, note that, like, Day was not really involved with their mother. Mm. Like, that was not a woman that knew her child that well. She was raised by her grandparents. Right. So they didn't realize how famous she was in Winnipeg until the free press reaches out to be like, did you know your grandmother was a minor celebrity in Winnipeg for four years? Huh. Which is a very strange, like, sort of persona to put on. Right. Yeah, you're the ultimate homemaker, and yet, you know. But also, I think it's kind of a good uh, statement on, like, 
being a homemaker is a full-time job. That's work. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you can't have time to work and also be a mother and be, be a, a wife and, and, keep and the make house. these and make fruitcakes. Yeah, and like test all of these recipes all the time because there's other stuff to do. Like, yeah. I think you kind of have to be independent and on your own one to of those, do that. One of those things is going to have to fall off. You totally, know? yeah. It's like a really brief period in the history of the free press, but this is like one of the first home ec, no- home ec mm. reporters they have, and it would have been such a like good resource for women in the 1930s who yeah. are forced into these roles of being a homemaker but don't have the tools to maybe navigate that. Yeah. And also, it's the Depression. Things are nuts. It's the Depression. There are new tools available that you might yeah. have trouble using. Like, I don't know if, you have, if you're using like a gas stove Can for the first openers time. were like relatively new and exciting right, on the market. Yeah. Do you remember when um, face the guy... That inspired James Bond invented a can opener that didn't work. Oh, um, um, I know, I know the guy you're talking about, but I've forgotten his name. This is great. We're very good. Local. There's a statue yeah. of him. Yeah, there's a statue William of Stevenson. him. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. He briefly tried to invent a can opener, and then it went nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> like the first can opener. I don't know if it was the first. How did one. you like use like a just knife like before? A can or? opener. Yeah, you'd yeah. use a knife. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I did have a can opener break on me once, and did have to use a knife. Did it? Did it work? No. I feel like you'd have to have quite a sturdy knife. A sturdy knife and a strong arm, which mm. um, I was 19 and living on my own. I did not have. <laughs> our our foremothers had a lot of arm strength that we do not eggs. have. Yeah. Like making like. Making like a meringue? Hard work. Yeah. Uh, so moving on from the world of home economics, we're talking about Frank Morris. Yeah. Who uh, we talked about a little bit in our episode on Deanna Durbin because he was the like foremost reporter on anything Deanna Durbin. Right. Because he knew her grandmother. Mm-hmm. So uh, Frank Morris is a reporter in Winnipeg who works for both the Tribune and the Free Press across his career. He also works for the Globe and Mail. Okay. He is uh, killed rather tragically in 1971. Like oh, he really? just retires and then within a month he's killed in a car accident. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. We're not going to dwell on that too much because it is really tragic. He talked yeah. a lot about like, I get to be with my daughters again. Yeah. Oh, no. But um, for a good chunk of his life, Morris was maybe one of the most well-connected arts reporters in Canada. Hmm. And definitely the most well-connected in Winnipeg. So he starts at the Free Press in 1928 as a copywriter and reporter, although he actually wrote one thing for a paper before this. In 1922, the Winnipeg Tribune is doing a junior section running short stories submitted by Winnipeg children. And uh, there's an honorable mention tale that comes from 16-year-old Frank Morris. Okay. He wrote a little story for the Tribune. That's really cute. I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want to read the first little bit of this aspiring reporter's little story. It's called Rosalind. Rosalind was the daughter of Duke Senior, who had been banished from his court by Duke Frederick, his younger brother, who usurped his estate. Duke Frederick kept Rosalind as a companion for his daughter Celia, but at the opening of her story, we find that Duke Frederick is jealous of her and wants her and wants some excuse to banish her. At this time, we find uh, Orlando Du Bois is also in trouble. His older brother, wanting to get rid of him, has arranged a wrestling match with a famous wrestler. <laughs> Uh, Charles, thinking that he will easily slay the slim young man. When Orlando comes to the court, Rosalind and Celia take compassion on him and endeavor to persuade him from what they think a foolish cause. But Orlando refuses very gracefully, telling them that if he was killed, the world would be rid of a nuisance because nobody would want him. Wow. <laughs> Alas, said Rosalind, my circumstances are similar to yours. My uncle only keeps me that I may be a companion to my cousin Celia. From this time, these two young people seem drawn to each other. To everybody's surprise, Orlando overthrows Charles in... Uh, Orlando and Celia are delighted, especially Rosalind, who gives Orlando a keepsake. Uh, Duke Frederick, learning that Orlando is the son of his brother's friend, vents his wrath on Rosalind and orders her to leave the court. 
then I too will go with her, says Celia. And so that night, Rosalind dresses a shepherd youth, and Celia dresses a shepherd maiden, flee from the court, taking the court jester touchstone with them. <laughs> uh, act two of the play opens with the arrival of Rosalind, Celia, and Touchstone in the forest of Ardrin. All are tired, but Rosalind keeps up a brave front, saying that it becomes a man to protect a woman. Later on, they buy a sheep coat and settle down. They try and find Duke Signor. Orlando comes in bringing his servant Adam. Uh, Orlando is fleeing his brother's wrath. And then uh, later on, she meets Orlando. He does not recognize her man's apparel. Rosalind tells him she will cure him of his love if, she will, if he will pretend that she is his mistress and come to her in her sheep coat. And everything ends, as the story says, as you like it. Ah, okay. He's he's just talking about the Shakespeare play. Got as it. you like it. But he, he it's really not clear. No. <laughs> he's just summarizing a play that he saw. Yes. Or read, maybe. I don't know. Yes, that's exactly what is happening. Okay. And I was reading it, and I'm like, the names sound familiar, but like I haven't like read or seen As You Like It yeah. in a long time. And then I'm like, why is he like skipping over the fight? Like, he wins. <laughs> <laughs> And then he ends it by saying, like, Rosalind is a gentle and kind woman with a strong personality. Like, this is just his book report. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, like, he's 16. Yeah. That makes sense. There's something kind of charming about it, too, because, like, across Morris's career, he has a very strong interest in local theater and drama. Okay. And in writing. So it's kind of is, like, the bedrock for his career in this weird honorable mention story that is just his book report. (laughs) His first actual byline, so far as I can tell, is in 1935. He's out covering a strike in Regina, and then a few months later, he's back in Winnipeg at the desk of the Free Press. In Morris's own words, he becomes a film critic by chance because a fellow reporter assigned him to do a movie review. Oh. Uh, and then our, his fellow reporter was assigned to do it. The reporter got drunk, and then Morris had to like save him <laughs> by stepping in to finish it. So he's not credited for this, and he doesn't name the reporter who got so drunk he couldn't do his review. But I mean, could have been any one of them. <laughs> It could From been. the sounds of yeah. it. So, we don't know when that was, but also, Morris does get a shout-out from a fellow reporter who was doing a like music radio review program, who mentions that he had missed a radio show, but Frank had caught it. And Frank was trying to explain this musical program to his co-worker. <laughs> and Frank went on to try and explain how smooth the rhythm was and how one instrument came in under the other and made several motions with his hands that contributed nothing I can put on paper with any degree of effectiveness. <laughs> so, um... When he gets a chance to write himself, Morse is a little more effective at communicating. He starts writing articles officially in 1936 uh, in the arts critic section. And his first article is called, Alas, My Youthful Critic, News of a Nazi Writer and Comments on a Local Impresario. And here is my um, little insight into uh, local arts feuding. We get some more beef in this episode. Okay, great. So Morris starts the story uh, by talking about a critic in Germany who wrote a negative review of a show. The lead performer uh, had Nazi connections and, like, calls in a favor to have the critic publicly shamed. Okay. And the truth of the story doesn't, like, super matter, because what Morris is trying to do is insult a local performer. Got it. Uh, Morris goes on to say that a local impresario who has, on occasion, expressed his violent disagreement with criticisms, which may have appeared in the local press, should read these remarks with interest. What beautiful thoughts they may put into his head. (laughs) Um, To no one's surprise... The impresario responds. Okay. He is writing about Fred Gee, who is a pianist who organizes, like, celebrity concert series with the symphony. Mm-hmm. He seems to be, like, a fairly well-respected arts guy. Like the guy who this impresario oh, yeah. is? Okay. Fred Gee. Uh, so, Gee writes to the free press and says, I left Winnipeg on Thursday last for a short visit to Bill Aberhart's uh, sunny domain. 
as life would be dull for me with the good old free press, I paid a good 50 cents to have it forwarded to me daily. <laughs> Your genial critic, Frank Morris, evidently unaware of this, took a mean advantage of my absence, thinking no doubt the free press would be prohibited in Alberta, <laughs> and wrote a comic story in which I was featured. Morris is mistaken in suggesting I would like to see a Nazi government in power. It's a matter of fact my pet aversions are nasty Nazis, saxophone players, and long sermons. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Guy then claims that Morris once quotes him, and the letter ends with an editor's note saying, In his last paragraph, G joins in the assemblage of persons who complain of being misquoted. The public has learned what this means. As to Mr. Gee's opinion of Mr. Morris, the public long learned to think of Mr. Gee's criticism of critics, and Mr. Gee and critics are both doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances. <laughs> There's no follow-up in this, but it's a very weird feud, and I tried so hard to be like, just who like, else was Gee fighting with? Just like, this guy's a Nazi, and he's like, no, I'm not, I hate I Nazis. And saxophone players. And saxophone That's players. such a like quippy 1930s yeah. response. You could hear like Cary Grant saying that in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> So he continues to write his little opinion pieces um, on Hollywood culture and on movies. He does a review of Alex's old favorite movie star in 1936. Oh, which one? Yes. Um, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Nice. He calls him lantern-jawed and homely as an old shoe. How dare he? <laughs> but he continues, James Stewart of Hollywood is likely to send the present crop of glamour boys scurrying back to oblivion before <laughs> these 12 months are over. Well, no. <laughs> Bad guess. Homely as an old shoe. <laughs> James Stewart isn't homely. Lantern Jaw is not too far off. Okay, yeah. He does have a bit of a long face. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of a weird looking guy. I, he's just charming, right? I yeah. think you're like, can overlook a Lantern Jaw. Those glamour boys scurrying. Yeah. <laughs> this is also the time that a Deanna Durbin is rising to fame in Winnipeg. She was born in Winnipeg, and her first movie comes out around 1936-37, and Morris finds his own little connection to Durbin, which is her grandmother. <laughs> Right. Who is still in Winnipeg, and he goes to her and is like, "Come to a screening of your granddaughter's movie. I'll invite everyone." There's like a Durbin family reunion where she goes to the movies for the first time and sees her granddaughter on screen, Aww. and he exploits this connection for all it is worth over the course of <laughs> Durbin's career as a movie star. Nice. Every time there's news, he like manages to get an invite to her wedding that he publishes in the paper. Wow. Yeah. I think because he like contacted a relative and was like, "Can I like get a copy of this for the paper?" Yeah. But then uh, in 1938, he gets to go stargazing himself. He goes to Hollywood. Oh. He meets up with extras. He has old age makeup put on. He meets up with Betty Davis. Oh, yeah. You sent me a picture of the old age makeup thing. He looks very funny. (laughs) Um, He described Betty Davis as breezy like the sea air with a tang of salt in it. Wow. I think I'd like to be described that way. Yeah. (laughs) Just just a tang of salt? I don't know. Yeah. I think so, too. Um, His column becomes called Here, There, in Hollywood. And, like, he manages to befriend a decent amount of Hollywood celebrities throughout his career. Mm-hmm. And he goes on vacation in 1949, and he has friends in Hollywood write letters for him. So there's some lesser-known ones, like uh, Gordon McRae and Phyllis Thaxter, but also uh, Ricardo Montalban. Okay. Uh, Claudette Colbert, Jane Russell, Humphrey mm. Bogart, wow. and Groucho Marx. And Groucho Marx. They all write letters to the free press being like, hey, Frank Morris. Wow. Yeah. So, like, whether or not they actually wrote it and their, like, publishers did it, it's kind of up uh, in the air. Yeah, sure. There's always some level of, like, a facade of any sort of Hollywood celebrity. Right. And 
Morris might have had access to them because he was nice. Yeah. Like, Hollywood gossip columnists could get in by, like, I'm going to publish a nice review of you and then yeah. get more scoops, basically. It's funny. I feel like the internet has made celebrities so much more reachable. Yes. It, like, it would not be that. It would not be printable in a newspaper now that a celebrity wrote you a letter. Yeah. I mean, it's like I tweeted at someone. They responded because I was mean and they didn't yeah. like it. <laughs> Somewhere on the way, like, he also meets Marilyn Monroe. Okay. So, like, he's meeting all of these, like, pretty famous celebrities yeah. and apparently maintaining enough of a connection they're willing to have someone write to the free press for them, if not writing it themselves. Mm -hmm. Humphrey Bogart's letters a lot about how he's adjusting to being a dad. Oh, that's, I mean, that's kind of nice. Yeah. I kind of hate Humphrey Bogart. No, I know you do. <laughs> we both do. I mean, he was a McCarthyite, so. Yeah. I like him in movies. Sure. Yeah. Though also, not, a, not the nicest guy. No, but also, will I ever remember the plot of the Maltese Falcon? No. I've never seen the Maltese Falcon. Alex, we watched it at an HSA event. Oh! <laughs> Alex, we have watched the movie together. So apparently I also will not remember the plot of the Maltese Falcon. That's so, That's funny. so funny. I le I legitimately have no memory of this. It was one of the movie screenings we organized when we were back in university. <laughs> I remember other ones of those. <laughs> I don't know if anyone came to the Maltese Falcon. Okay, yeah. But yeah, I'm glad that you also don't remember. <laughs> Incredible. So he keeps going back to Hollywood over the years. Um, in 1954, he does a world tour where he gets to go like see movie sets in Rome. This is when they're starting to film stuff like mm -hmm. The Good, Bad, and the Ugly would be not too far after this. Okay. So like there's like sort of Italian directors coming into prominence. So he's seeing those movie sets and meeting people who are filming overseas. And then uh, in 1956, he goes to Disneyland because it just opened. Fun. So he gets like to do a full tour. He takes some former Winnipeggers who live in L.A., uh, Tiny and Ellen Timbrell. Tiny is the husband. Okay. They just call him Tiny. People don't get nicknames as much these no, days. No, they don't. So yeah, he takes Tiny and Ellen and their kids on a fun trip. And also he brings his wife and his kids with them. Like his wife okay. gets to meet all of these yeah. people. His wife, it seems like, is usually with him on these trips. That's nice. It's very sweet. Um, He's on the set of High Society on oh. Grace Kelly's last day filming. Whoa. Ever. High Society is Grace <gasps> Kelly's last movie. He sees her last scenes as an actor. That's crazy. That is a wild amount of privilege yeah. to get as a Winnipeg reporter. Yeah. Um, he remains at the Free Press until 1959 when he goes to work for the Globe and Mail. He then uh, comes back to Manitoba to work for the Tribune in 1966, where he uh, continues to sort of do his tours. He goes on a tour with the ballet. He becomes like a big arts critic in the city. Um, apparently, he also was regularly talking to Joan Crawford, who was, like, a friend of his that called him all the time. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um. It might be nice to talk to, like, a small town reporter who's, like, grateful for your attention, you know? Yeah. I feel like if, like, a Hollywood reporter's probably talking to stars all the time, you know? Yeah. He mentions in a couple of them, like, when he met Grace Kelly, he was a little flustered and was like, I went to Monte Carlo once and it was nice! I'd be so flustered if I met Grace Kelly. Right? <laughs> She was apparently very nice. He also uh, describes Sinatra as, like, significantly improving since the last time he saw him. I guess, like, Sinatra's career as a movie star had, like... Okay, I see. I thought you meant, like, visually, or... No, no, it was that he seemed a lot more confident on set. It seemed okay. like the last time Morris had seen him filming, he looked kind of like he was at war with himself. Ah. Uh. <laughs> but on the set of High Society, he seemed pretty, like, content. Right. Also, he's filming with Grace Kelly. <sighs> And, yeah. like, a fairly goofy movie musical. And it's yeah. just, like, a straightforward remake of a popular movie already. Yeah. Man, High Society is so good. It's a really good movie. Um, where was I now? Uh, so, throughout his career, Morris is involved with the local press, cub, uh, press club. Best known for uh, their beer and skits shows. Is this what you were digging up yearbooks for yes. in the press club? <laughs> yes. So, this is a topic for another episode. Because, yes. oh my god, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> They're basically rowdy skit shows. 
with only men allowed. No women are allowed at these things. Probably, you know what? Cora Hine didn't even want to be there. No, which is uh, fair. <laughs> fair. It's a lot of like what you would think of like locker room talk from 19, like, but like century reporter. Like in skit form. Yeah. So they're doing like political lampooning. Like okay. people are playing like John Diefenbaker and stuff. Got it. Yeah. Um, and the ads for these things are weird. Like they would put out a yearbook at these events. Yeah. And there would be like. I mean, that in itself is weird to make like a yearbook for your adult club. For your industry club. I guess yeah. it's not like. A year in review written by the reporters. Yeah. So, like, Frank Morris writes articles in them. Sometimes he'd be like, here's what I think about the industry. Mm-hmm. But then uh, local advertisers will take out ads in them. And the ads are very sexual for companies that are otherwise not. Uh-huh. I was sending you some of <laughs> yeah. them. They're very confusing. I don't know how to explain. There's there, one for the Red River X. There are so many boobs. There's so many boobs. Yeah, the Red River Exhibition one uh, is just a photo of someone's breast or boob basically like loosely covered by a see-through fabric yeah and it says face the facts we're exhibitionists (laughs) so it's very much a like toxic boys club thing that seems bonkers to be a part of it's it's funny that like the advertisers knew they were like this will what'll this is what'll appeal to them there's some really weird ones for winnipeg hydro yeah uh, these are hard to get access. There's only one available online. I think because some of these companies still exist. Yeah, they might not want these coming out. But uh, they are available at the U of M archives. If you want to go and take a look at some weirdly raunchy ads. They're so strange. They're so funny to look at. Yeah. It's such a weird glimpse into working culture. Right? I mean, imagine, like, actually imagine being someone like Cora Hind, right? Who has to, like, deal with all of these men who are yeah. just, like, goofing off. Yeah. There's a lot of weird stories also of, like, the newsroom being relatively rowdy. Yes. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, even, like, um, like when I worked at the Manitoba Museum, there are stories from, like, when it opened in, like, the 70s of it being, like, super rowdy. Yeah. People, like, riding on the bison and stuff. Man. Yeah. So, uh, skits are a big thing in uh, newspaper culture across the 1930s all the way into, like, the 1990s. And they're mostly ones that people put on, but in 1958, a free press article proposes a alternative version of a sports show okay. uh, called football huddle <laughs> uh, the new version is called backstage huddle and the skit features uh john hirsch the founder of manitoba theater center yeah. and frank morris okay so we are uh, naturally going to be doing a dramatic reading uh i am going to cast alex as morris okay and nick is john hirsch i emailed it to you already yeah i was wondering about a half hour ago <laughs> what you were emailing me <laughs> Okay. okay, so I'm Morris. Yeah. Are you going to read the... I'll start the set. Okay. Scene. Yeah. So scene. Backstage, scenery piled here and there, costumes hanging on hooks, single pilot light burning. Frank Morris steps into the circle of light, blinks at the camera, and says... Oh, are we on? Well, good evening, folks. This is Frank Morris speaking to you from backstage at the Dominion Theater, where I'll be having a chinwag with coach John Hirsch in just a few moments. But first, a word from Bolshoi Ballet Tights, the product that makes this show possible. Commercial, then back to Frank. And here's Coach John Hirsch. How are you, John? Fine. And how's the play coming along? Will the kids be up for the big one on opening night? Well, Frank, it's a bit odd to say right now. Most of the kids have their lines memorized now, but uh, (laughs) one or two are having a bit of trouble. I've been bugged by injuries during the past week, Frank. Gordon Pinsent pulled up with a sore throat on Wednesday. The dad from due south. Uh, And George Warrior twisted his ankle, making an exit. But they're showing a good response to treatment, and I think we'll have them in the lineup on opening night. That's good to hear, John. But what about Robertson? I hear he had a little accident the other night. 
Oh, that's right, Frank. A sandbag fell on his uh, left shoulder, uh, put it out of joint. But we've uh, we've had him in the whirlpool bath every night this week, and I think he's coming around. Well, folks, we've got some film clips taken at rehearsal the other night. What's, what's the John? What's this, John? I should have said. Sorry. Oh. What's <laughs> what's this, John? Oh, that Frank is Gordon Pinson gargling with salt and water for his sore throat. Uh, we use a lot of salt. And water in a season. What's this picture, John? Oh, that's a close-up of Gordon's tonsils, <laughs> Rag. Uh, see how enlarged they are? Now that spoon coming down into the picture uh, is to hold down Gordon's tongue while our trainer squirts a little throat spray in there. That's fine, John. Now what about imports? I hear you're planning to bring some actors in from the East. Uh, well, Frank, you know, I can't say anything about that now, but I can say that we're quite happy with our home brews and hope to see a lot of improvement this year. Well, folks, I see our time's just about up. I'd like to thank Coach Hirsch for dropping around tonight. And here, before you go, John, is a gift from the makers of Bolshoi Ballet Tights, the no-rip, no-stretch ballet tights endorsed by Arnold Spore. What's the gift, Frank? A pair of Spore's old ballet tights, John. <sighs> <laughs> and scene, scene. <laughs> that's very cute i just thought it was very very funny yeah. <laughs> so they were doing all kinds of um this is not a skit that happened this is oh, someone this is writing just... a essentially fan fiction between john hirsch and frank morris <laughs> this was never put on it's just a reporter oh. being like i think this might be funny if this, it happened if they did this it would be a funny gag <laughs> <laughs> that's all it is well, we brought it to life today for you. Thank you. Winnipeg. Oh, man. No one does it like us. No one writes hypothetical plays between local theater people. With close-ups of tonsils. <laughs> also, like, renowned Canadian actor Gordon Pinsent's tonsils. Yeah. <laughs> the dad from Due South. Yeah. Wasn't he Fraser's dead dad? He is. He's yeah. the ghost dad. Yeah. Ghost dad. What a weird show. <laughs> Great show. It's so good. Yeah, so um, Morris is obviously a theater critic. He's actually pretty involved in, like, Manitoba Theater Center reviews, and mm -hmm. he's, like, a big sort of com uh, advocate for the local arts. He goes on tour with the ballet while he's working for the Tribune. Okay. So there's a reason he's the reporter mentioned in this hypothetical skit. Yeah. He's the guy who would go talk to John Hirsch. Right. He would do the, the backstage huddle. Yeah. Uh, Gene Telpner, who also wrote for the Free Press and the Tribune, was a pretty close friend of Morris's, so... Uh, Teltner started at the Free Press when Morris was the entertainment editor, and Morris is apparently pretty willing to, like, let him take on stories that he wanted to. Mm -hmm. So Teltner writes his obituary and really credits him with, like, giving him a leg up as a reporter. And Teltner writes this really loving tribute after Frank's death to him and his wife, Pat. And he recalled once that a critic called Winnipeg a dull place, and Morris called him up and personally informed him that Winnipeg was a cultural oasis in the prairie. <laughs> <laughs> is this how we need to start addressing that when people... <laughs> A yeah. cultural oasis in the, the prairie. We just called them and we're like, hey. How dare, we, how dare you? Winnipeg is a cultural oasis. <laughs> and they'll be like, is it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I said so. One time Kevin Smith called Winnipeg desolate. <gasps> is this not why he got banned from someplace? Wasn't he banned from Rumors? Or is this a different comedian? Well, he's like a filmmaker. Oh, I'm thinking of a different guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> fair. But yeah, we are a cultural oasis on the prairies. Yeah. Yeah. And we can also be desolate. Yeah, that's why we have so much culture stuff. What else are we going to do? Uh, Go outside? Well, yeah. Alex? No. Never. no. <laughs> so that uh, is Frank Morris, our inexplicably well-connected arts reporter. 
very nice. Uh, obviously, there's been lots of other reporters at the Free Press over the years. There's been um, two Gordon Sinclairs. Okay. Gordon Sinclair yeah. Sr., Gordon Sinclair Jr. Got a lot of Sinclairs in general. Yeah. Uh, Vince Lay, who was obviously a pretty big oh, one. Oh, yeah. Um, Catherine uh, Queen Hughes mm-hmm. was the first female sports reporter in uh, 1928. She is the daughter of strike leader John Queen and is like oh, Catherine. Cool. Yeah. Uh, she goes to work for the Tribune afterwards. She's only with the Free Press for like a year, but oh, okay. I just thought it was cool to mention that yeah. um, this daughter of a strike leader is a sports reporter in Winnipeg. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Um, happy birthday to the Winnipeg Free Press. Yeah, You've given us birthday. lots of uh, very, um, very strange stories over the years. Should I finish with my strange but unverified story? Yes, do your uh, strange unverified story. Okay, so this story I can only find one source for. And the person who sourced it has died. Yes. So I tried my very best to corroborate it, but was unable to. But I think it's fun anyway, so I'm going to tell it. So apparently in the 1920s and 30s, there was a man who um, established squatters rights in the newsroom of the free press. (laughs) This is the story. (laughs) So apparently for about 10 years, he would sleep upright in a chair, like just outside the like room where the printing was done. Wow. (laughs) And... (laughs) Another part to this story is that apparently at one point there was a new um, employee and they convinced him that this guy who just like lived in the free press newsroom um, was Macklin, (laughs) the like business manager guy, and said to be very careful not to wake him because he was like, you know, he's like... (laughs) And so at one point, this new employee accidentally wakes him up and just like flees. (laughs) Oh, God, no. Yeah. What year was this? Um, so they say, I think from 1924 is what they claim. So 24, they said around 10 years. So 24 to 34, as I say, I could not corroborate this. Wow. I found it in one source. It could just be, it was from James Gray, apparently, but I didn't find it in his autobiography. So it could have just been something he like related to the person who wrote this. Because they were, I think they would have been kind of contemporary. So, um, yeah, could have been a thing that happened. It's so funny to trick a new guy into being like, that guy that's always sleeping, that's the guy that runs this. That's the, that's the boss of everything. <laughs> and he's always asleep. Yeah. And we don't question that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so thank you for listening. Or thank you for listening to another uh, episode of One Great History. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you can uh, check our social media for uh, pictures of the reporters we talked about, some fun behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I have pictures of uh, Frank Morris with Marilyn Monroe. Nice. Uh, him in old age makeup, Cora Hind in her fun hat, Madeline Day presenting all kinds of stuff in the uh, free press test kitchen. Cool. There's uh, portraits of like Luxton, but he wasn't posing for anything in a fun way. No, I'll put up some portraits of some of the people we talked about. They they were mostly like old guys. Yeah, <laughs> old guys <laughs> posing very nicely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a picture you found that had like Defoe and Hind and Morris. Yeah, yeah. I'll make sure that we put that one up. Yeah, it's a fun little overlap of all of the like reporters yeah. in Winnipeg and how bustling it was. Yeah. And- yeah, so we are on social media at One Great History on Facebook and Instagram at number one great history on Twitter for however long we have that for nowadays. For however long Twitter <laughs> Let's is go buy a crap. blue check. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and your Patreon money could support us in buying a blue hey, check. Hey, if you want to give us money, no, we're going to spend your money on better things. But. No, we will. On, like, resources in putting this podcast up. We do have a Patreon. It's $5 a month for all kinds of fun bonus episodes, a monthly Ginger Stokes news clippings. What's this month's Patreon about? Uh, this one is the story of Punk Island. Right. In the uh, brawling moose. <laughs> so if you want an uh, insight into Punk Island off of Heckle and why anyone would call it that, that's November's bonus episode. 
Uh, and I think that's everything on us for the month. Thank you so much. We'll see you in December.